Well, Calvary, uh, we have reached nine months into our study of the Gospel of Mark, and that's where we are today. Uh, nine months in, and we're in chapter 10, more than halfway through the book, but today we come to a really important section, a section that features the key verses of this book. I started out nine months ago thrusting at the uh, main theme of the Gospel of Mark, which is Jesus as our Savior, but our servant Savior. He is the servant Jesus. Matthew is all about him being King Jesus. In contrast to that, Mark stands as the Gospel that speaks of his servanthood. And we come to that key servanthood section today. Uh, nine months ago, when I opened this series, I actually told the story of the starting of the Salvation Army by William Booth. And Booth was gathering Christians from all over the world to form a Christian uh, army that would go out into the whole world sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one pastor really wanted to be a part of that. He actually crossed the ocean to join William Booth in getting that going. And he just envisioned himself, since he was a pastor, as being probably a leader of hundreds and even thousands. Thousands of those soldiers under William Booth. He was very excited about it, and when Booth saw him, he read that quickly and thought, uh-oh. And so Booth put him in charge of cleaning the soldiers' boots, polishing them, spit-shining them. And Pastor Brengel thought that was very dishonoring to him as a man of the cloth, a clergyman, and you know, he just thought he was destined for better. Booth talked to him. Talked to him about humility, servanthood. Pastor finally got the message and he prayed, Father, your son washed the disciples' feet. If he did that, I can polish their boots. Servanthood, it's not real popular. Even in our world, servanthood is certainly anything but popular. Leadership, visionary leadership, do what's necessary. But servanthood? We come to a key section today in the book of Mark, chapter 10, the section where Jesus declares his kingdom is not about leadership as the world defines it. It's about a different kind of leadership servant leadership. I'm reading from Mark chapter 10, verse 32 and following. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. The disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then, James and John, sons of Zebedee, came to him Teacher, they said, we want you to do something. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. He said to them, you will drink the cup I drink. And be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. 
but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the reading of God's word. May he bless it. This passage contains two great challenges that Jesus wants his disciples to get. The first challenge is about suffering. He will be leaving them soon. They need to understand this. His earthly ministry is coming to an end. He only has several weeks now until the cross. He knows what's coming. Most of his public healings and public teaching times are now behind him. And he is focused on these 12 men, preparing them to take over for when he is gone. Of course, the 12 will only be 11. Judas will be gone by that point. Notice how this first challenge, beginning in verse 32, the text says, and they were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. There he is. He's right out in front. He's a man on a mission. He knows where he's going. He knows where he's, why he's going there. I'm reminded of the words in Isaiah chapter 50 where it talks of him setting his face toward Jerusalem like a flint. He knew why he was going there. He knew his purpose. To this, the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. There's a mixture among the followers of Jesus and his disciples, astonishment and fear. What is that all about? Well, some of them are simply astonished because Jesus has been turning everything in their world upside down in his preparations for them to lead once he is gone. They have to understand the kingdom of God will be very different than the kingdom of this earth. And so Jesus, in the verses just before this, chapter 9, chapter 10, Jesus turns everything around. For example... When he's questioned on the issue of divorce and marriage, the popular view of the day was divorce could take place for just about any reason, and Jesus said, no, one man, one woman for life. That's the way it was meant to be. Divorce is the exception. It is not the norm. And the disciples looked at him and went, what? He turned it around. In the verses that followed that, the children were trying to come to Jesus in the the day That culture of that day said children are so unimportant, just keep them away. And so the disciples are trying to keep the children away from Jesus. She said, no, 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 bring them. The kingdom of God is made of such as these. And the disciples thought, what? And then a wealthy man came to Jesus seeking eternal life. The view of the day was very common 
Rich people were blessed by God, sort of like a prosperity gospel. They were good people, so God blessed them with money. And Jesus says, they had expected. Not only were they astonished, but some of them were fearful. They're starting to get the message. Jesus is heading for Jerusalem, and he keeps saying he's going to die there. They're wondering, wait a minute, if he dies, what happens to us? So there's some fear here. Jesus says to them in verse 33 and 34, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Three days later, he'll rise. Wait a minute, that's not what we signed up for. What? They thought they were going to rule and reign with Jesus in his kingdom. They envisioned themselves people feeding them grapes and waving big fans on them as they sat in their thrones of comfort. Has your Christianity turned out to be what you expected it to be? We in some way identify with the disciples. Jesus turns everything upside down. This is at least now the third time Jesus has been warning them about his coming death. And they clearly have not understood. They're starting to get it now. The first time he told them was in Mark chapter 8, where he said in verses 31 and 32, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly to them about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And that's the moment where Jesus looked at Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Jesus knew what he came to do, and he wasn't even going to let his disciples get in the way. They had no understanding Jesus would die. He was going to lead them into victory over the Romans and kick the Romans out of town. And then they would set up Jesus' kingdom. Jesus die? What? It didn't make sense. The second time in chapter 9 where Jesus told them about his coming death, he said in chapter 9, verses 30 and following, Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were, all the crowds and that. He said, giving his attention now and building the disciples and preparing them, he was, text goes on and says, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant. And they were afraid to ask him about it. It's interesting, if you keep reading the verses that follow, the disciples were arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. He had just told them he's going to die, and they still didn't get it. Lest we be too hard on the disciples, there are many things that we miss as well. And we think God will do things this way, and we pray, and 
He does, behold, he doesn't do it that way. And we go, what? It doesn't work out our way. God has his plans. In our passage today, Jesus now tells his disciples for the third time, it's starting to sink in. Now they're astonished, now they're afraid. He tells them he is going to Jerusalem. Oh, that's what he's doing. Oh, he's going to die in Jerusalem. Oh. And our passage tells how he will be mocked and flogged and whipped and, and killed. No wonder they're afraid. And Jesus leads the way. He knows where he's going, and he knows why he's going there. In our Christian experience, we often think we understand the will of God. And we end up saying, what? His plans, his ways are different than our thoughts. His ways are far beyond ours. Just as the disciples were challenged, so we are challenged. Who among us has had our Christian experience turn out like we thought it was going to turn out? Probably for most of us, the highs have been even higher than we expected, and the lows have certainly been far lower than we expected, and in between them, there was much more mundane time than we expected. This is the first challenge in our passage today, that Jesus wanted his disciples and us to understand there will be suffering. The second challenge picks up in verse 35, where he addresses the issue of servanthood. And here's the ultimate what, if you would. It's very interesting at this point after Jesus describes his coming death and his being mocked and uh, spit on and flogged and killed. Immediately James and John, verse 35 says, Then James and John, sons of Zebedee, came to him, Teacher, we want you to do something, whatever we ask. And Jesus says, well, what do you want me to do? And they reply, let us sit at your right and left in your glory. Let us have those key thrones. He just told them he's going to die. And they're asking for thrones. What? This is bizarre. For some time, the disciples have had an ongoing argument who was the greatest in the kingdom. Who would get those left and right thrones? I wonder how often we're out of touch with God's plan for us. We think more things are coming or something is coming and it's not. And we certainly don't expect what is coming in the plan and providence of God. Jesus responds to them in verse 38 and he says, uh, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink of the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And they say, we can. <laughs> they haven't got a clue. Nor do we. This is why we walk by faith 
in this world, not by sight. Jesus says to them, can you drink of the cup and can you be baptized? He uses two metaphors here to drive the truth home. He's being far more gentle with them than they deserve. He is far more patient than they deserve. He's really quite kind. He just told them he's going to die and they're asking for thrones. The first metaphor, can you drink of the cup? We know what he's referencing when he's in the garden in just a few weeks. He will ask the Father to let this cup pass from him, this cup of suffering. But nevertheless, not what he wills, but what the Father wills. James and John, can you handle the suffering that's coming? We can! Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? The baptism of suffering, can you be immersed in it far deeper than you ever realized? You are going to suffer far more than you anticipated. It is so good, we do not know what is in God's plan in this fallen world. They naively respond, we can, we can. James, you will experience the cup. You'll be among the first to be martyred, Acts chapter 12. You will suffer and lay down your life. John, you will suffer. They will try to kill you numerous times. They will fail because God will allow him to miraculously escape because God's plan is not finished with John yet. Eventually, not being able to kill him, they exile him to the island of Patmos where he writes the book of Revelation. You can't contain this guy while God's still using him. Church history does not tell us of the end of John's life. Probably he died of old age, but he might have been a martyr too. We don't know. All of the other apostles would drink the cup of suffering. They would become martyrs. We can drink it, Lord. Yeah, just let us have their left and right hand thrones. It's great. Jesus said to them, after they replied, we can, you will drink of the cup and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptizing with, but to sit at my right and left hands is not for me to grant. Why is God? That's something the Father takes care of. These places belong to those for whom they have prepared. Apparently, they're still open. Don't go throne hunting, though. Verse 41 tells us that the other disciples were upset. The other ten heard what John and James and John were asking for, and they're indignant with James and John. They're really ticked off. They're upset. They wanted those seats of priority, and they're probably upset that James and John thought to ask first or had the guts to ask first. Actually, James and John didn't quite have the guts to ask. If you know your Bible, you know the rest of the story. The gospel account of Matthew gives some details that Mark does not give us. In Matthew, we learn James and John, when they go to ask for the key seats, they don't quite have the guts to do it, so they bring their mommy along, and they get mommy to ask Jesus for the key thrones. Yeah. 
And then, starting in verse 42, Jesus responds to all of this. Once again, he's just prophesied he will be dying, and once again the disciples are fighting over who's the greatest. And then Jesus calls them all to task with the theme verses, the key verses of the book of Mark, verse 42 and following. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, lorded over them, Rulers of this world are masters over the people. They lord it over them, and the high officials exercise authority over them. Get ready, another what moment is about to be birthed. This world is all about mastering and authority and power. But only a few can hold those in our culture. They're key positions of leadership. The disciples, if they're going to be a part of the kingdom of God, have to relearn this one because things in the kingdom are going to be very different. Verse 43, Jesus continues, not so with you. This is not about mastering others. It is not about power or control or authority. It's not going to be that way with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Whoa. And altogether they said, what? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here Jesus is held up as the ultimate model of servanthood. God in the flesh comes not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The disciples are following the pattern of the world. They want power and authority and mastery over others. And Jesus says, not so with you. Today in our world, this text is so relevant. In our world, in the business world, it is all about leadership and climbing high and CEOs and mastering and and an authority and power and running over people if necessary to get there. It's about visionary leadership. In churches, we insist on having pastors that are visionary leaders. Do you know that last month, in the month of January, 1,300 pastors were dismissed from their positions of pastoral leadership. The number one reason was they're not visionary leadership material. They didn't have a vision. Where does that come from? Do you find that in the Bible? No. If you go to the requirements in the Bible for God's leaders, elders, and Pastors, found in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, never once is visionary leadership, never once is leadership mentioned. 
So the tendency in our culture is to follow the culture rather than God's plan. So pastors are taught to reach for the top, to try to pastor the biggest churches, the pulpits that have the power, to be pulpit superstars. Isn't it uncanny how these things haunt us century after century? It was Martin Luther King Jr. who said, anyone can be great in the kingdom of God. That is not true in the culture of the world. It takes something different to be great in the kingdoms of the world. But in God's kingdom, anyone can be great. And Luther was right when he said, uh, Martin uh, Luther King Jr. was right when he said, in God's kingdom, you do not need a college degree or a seminary degree to serve. In fact, you don't have to know Plato or Aristotle. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity. You don't have to understand the second law of thermodynamics. What you need is character, a heart full of grace, and a soul driven by love and service. In God's kingdom, anybody can be great. In the kingdoms of this world, only those who are the best in human thinking are the great. So a short while before the death of Jesus, he met with his disciples. They had a Passover meal together. It had been a busy day, and of course the disciples were still arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom of God. And when they walked into the upper room that night to have that Passover meal, they all walked by the towel in the basin of water. In their culture, they knew exactly what that meant. It was for foot washing. You see, in walking the dusty roads of Judah, Jerusalem, you were best refreshed coming into a nice meal to have your feet washed so you could relax and enjoy the meal. Any host knew that was the custom of the day. You washed your guests' feet. But the disciples who were arguing over who's going to be the greatest, they walked right by the towel and the basin. So Jesus gets up from the table and he takes off his outer coat and he dawns around him the towel, and he picks up the water basin, and he begins to wash the feet of the disciples. <laughs> and they are embarrassed. They should be. Because they were arguing about who would be the greatest. And Jesus washed their feet and taught them a great lesson in servanthood, humility. This is a different way to understand leadership when you speak of servant leadership. It is something that the world does not understand. So it is very possible as a servant leader for Jesus, as you serve, you undoubtedly have felt times when you are not appreciated, when you are not respected. 
In this culture, why would you expect otherwise? But you can be sure that our Lord Jesus is watching. He loves it when he sees his children living out the principles of his kingdom versus the culture of this world. Our text closed by Jesus saying, he came to be a ransom for our sin. A ransom. He paid the redemption price for our sin. Now, for those of you who have studied the ransom concept and the various theories of atonement at higher education levels, that's not where I'm going in this moment. The point of this passage is to simply say, Jesus served us by paying the ransom price for our soul. He bought us off the marketplace of sin. He made it possible that our sins could be forgiven. He served us. And now he says, serve one another. So may I encourage you today in your positions of lowliness of service to serve on. If your job is particularly dirty or unappreciated, know that the master sees that. Serve. Don't expect accolades from this world. It's a totally different system. But do know this, when you serve, you are part of the biggest and greatest kingdom, far bigger than this people of this earth can imagine, the kingdom of God. If you're here with us today and you've been a part of this culture as we all have been and you have not understood that Jesus served you and loved you, he made it possible. You can't get yourself into heaven by being good. Your sins keep you out. You've got to handle the sin problem. And Jesus came and he paid the ransom price for your sin so you could be forgiven. He gave of his body and his blood was shed for you so that you could be forgiven your sin and you could be with him forever. He served you with an opportunity for salvation. Will you receive it? Let us bow our heads. Thank you, Father, for the exemplary leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ in service, showing us how different the kingdom of God is from the kingdom of mankind. We pray in particular for any that are listening through YouTube or any that are here in the auditorium with us today that have not yet trusted Jesus, that he paid the ransom price for their sin and they can be forgiven. They can experience salvation. May today be the day of their salvation and bring them into the kingdom of God. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen.